Open your Bibles, please, to Malachi chapter 4, and please be prepared to go quickly this evening. Malachi chapter 4, and we want to consider some New Testament prophecies that match up with the Old Testament prophecies that we looked at this morning. This morning we traced from all the way from Deuteronomy chapter 18. We've come into the Psalms on other occasions, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, Psalm 8. We came into the book of Isaiah, we came into the book of Daniel. We saw prophecies in Daniel that described God's judgment upon His people. The vast majority of the book you hold in your hands is a Jewish book, written by the Lord of the Jews to prophets of the Jews and warning them of judgment, blessings and curses. Blessings if they obeyed, curses if they disobeyed. We came into Joel, we came into Amos, we saw Haggai, we came to Malachi. I just want to refresh your memory of where we were this morning by coming to the fourth chapter. Let's read it. Malachi chapter 4, the last six verses of the Old Testament. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And thus ends the Old Testament. Let me remind you that the book of Malachi is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Israel, the book of Malachi after 70 A.D. only has indirect lessons that we can learn from it because its primary and specific lessons were going to be preached by John the Baptist and applied to a nation that had forgotten its maker, forgotten the God that had chosen them, blessed them, brought them back from Babylon. They had profaned the worship of God as we, as you can read in these four chapters. And so a day was coming in which God was going to bring judgment upon them. He reminded them in the fourth verse, Malachi 4.4, three verses from the end of the Old Testament, that they should remember that they had been warned about all these things in the law of Moses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And that's why the end of the book ends with a curse. Because John the Baptist would come and preach a message of repentance. And if the nation did not repent, as in the days of Asa, as in the days of Jehoshaphat, If they did not repent, he would smite the earth, and that's the Judean earth, because this is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. He would smite them with the curse. And while some believed John and were baptized, many did not. Elijah the prophet in Malachi 4-5 is John the Baptist. It's not John the Baptist and someone else. It's John the Baptist. It doesn't matter what C.I. Schofield or J.N. Derby have to say, and they say it can't be John the Baptist. Jesus said it was John the Baptist, and if you had ears to hear, you would hear that. And if you will, receive it, because it's the truth, Jesus said. Let's come over now to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, where Elijah the prophet begins his ministry, and I say that in figurative words. One brother came up to me this morning and he said, In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God will raise up a prophet like unto Moses. When the Jews asked John, was he that prophet? Was that the question they were asking? Was he the man from Deuteronomy 18? They did ask him that. What did he say? No, no, he wasn't the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 because that was the Lord Jesus Christ. They then asked him, now, now you gotta think on this one, art thou Elias? Elias is the Greek form of Elijah. 
Art thou Elijah the prophet? What did he say? No. Because they were like the futurists expecting Elijah to come back literally. They did not understand the figurative language that it was just going to be a man in the spirit and power of Elijah. And John didn't help them out either. He just said, no, I'm not. He didn't say, no, I'm not. But on the figurative fulfillment of that prophecy, he just left them to fall into the ditch where Jesus wanted them. The disciples believed the same thing. When they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples saw Moses and Elijah appear with the Lord Jesus Christ on the way down. They said, Lord, the scribes teach that Elijah has to come first. Why hasn't he? Jesus said, he has come first, and they punished him. Oh, and then it says, then they understood that he spake of John the Baptist. They themselves were misguided because they thought there was going to be some literal fulfillment of Elijah coming back, and it was going to be John the Baptist. Those are a couple of verses that might give you a little trouble when you read, and the Jews ask John, art thou Elias? And he says, no, I'm not, because he wasn't Elias, literally. He was Elias figuratively, and they didn't understand that, and he left them in their ignorance. Matthew chapter 3, look at that. Oh, I love the gospel of Matthew. You children, you young people, forgive me for such a degrading term, you young people that are studying the gospel of Matthew, love it. Look at that first verse that you have memorized. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. You want to love this this Bible. And you want to love this book. Because there's 400 years of silence in that blank, blank, blank page that you have between Malachi and Matthew. Malachi ended his prophecy with the threat of a curse. There's 400 years of silence. And then we have the book of the generation or the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And there are his ancestors. And we go into the gospel of the New Testament. And we come to Matthew chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. You know, he had a message that was two main points that pertain to our subject. He preached the time is fulfilled. So there's, there must be timed prophecies that the time was running out. And there was, wasn't there? We were, we were entering into the 483rd year or the 69th, ending the 69th week. Of Daniel's prophecy. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. A kingdom. God is about to raise up a kingdom like he promised in Daniel 2.44. And the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That was John's wonderful ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Because there's soon to be a king sitting on David's throne. If you'll fall down and be broken and worship him, he'll save you. If you rebel against him, he'll destroy you from among the people and he'll make you his footstool. They, the Jews all understood that. But they didn't like John the Baptist way out there in the wilderness. They wanted somebody that was going to throw off the Roman Empire and give them their national supremacy back. So they didn't want to hear John. They didn't want to hear Jesus. But here comes John. You know what he looked like. He was a wild man. He didn't wear fine suits. And he didn't have a good diet either. And they all went out to him and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And we come to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, and let me read to you his short sermon here. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down. And cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I. Whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And with fire. Whose fan is in his hand. And he will truly purge his four. 
and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is John the Baptist. And if you have read Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, John, Matthew chapter 3 just drops into it like a, the one piece remaining in a puzzle. It's so obvious that John the Baptist is preaching the very thing we read in Malachi 3 and 4 about a coming day that's going to burn like an oven and all the proud and all that do wickedly are going to be burned up. But he's going to make jewels in that very same day of those that put their trust in him because the same Savior will also have healing in his wings. Let's quickly look at what he said, though. And listen, I'm going to, we're just going to skim it. I want to finish this series. I have pages and pages and pages because I've worked hard, but we just have to skim it. First, look at what he said, O generation of vipers. And we've got this word that John, Jesus, and Peter will use 30 times. We all know what the word generation means. But there's confusion about it because of Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. C.I. Schofield and others like him do not want to let the word generation mean generation because it forces them to put the prophecy in those three chapters into 70 A.D. And they will not do it. So they corrupt the word generation. If I say to you, my father's generation saved more money than this generation, do you know what I mean? There's no question about what I mean. The men that were born around the period of time that my father was born is his generation. The people that were born around the time I was born are my generation. You know, in our society, we call it a generation gap. Because it's a generation of the parents and the generation of the children, and there's a difference in, there has been a difference in thinking in the past. There's no generation gap in this church. Except that your parents are wise and you're foolish. That's the only gap there's taught in the Bible between parents and children, and you owe them all your respect and reverence. They've lived your life before you and had 30 years to think about it before you came along. Generation. Now, there's many references that we could turn to here, but that's how it's used in the Bible. If we look into the Bible and we go to Acts 13, we try to go to verses that don't use it by John, Peter, or Jesus, because those are the ones that are under question. There's 30 of them. This generation. If I say to you, this generation is a wicked generation, you don't think that I'm talking about the white race. You don't think I'm talking about the black race. You don't think I'm talking about the United States of America or the Netherlands. You know that and you understand that I'm talking about the people that are living right now. The people living right now are very wicked. If I were to say this is a wicked generation, we have to work on this word and we shouldn't have to. We have to look at this word and remind ourselves what the word generation means because it's been corrupted. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul was preaching, he said, when David had served his generation, he fell asleep. Do you understand what that means? When David had served the men that were born at the same time he was, because they were citizens in Israel while he was the king. If I were to say to you, the generation in the wilderness, would you understand what that is? It's the generation that came out of Egypt and disobeyed Moses and God overthrew them in the wilderness. If we go to Matthew chapter 1 and just look back at what we have found in the New Testament so far, do you quizzers remember if the word generation appeared in verse 17? Matthew 1, 17. Question. What does the word generation mean in Matthew 1, 17? Do we have it there a few times? So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Why would it use it in the plural? If it means nation or race. C.I. Schofield and others that try to teach a future application of all the prophecies make the word generation mean race or nation. Can't find a use like that in the Bible, but that's what they make it. And they will say, well, that's what it means in Matthew 24. Well, you don't start with Matthew 24. Those are some of the last words Jesus spoke before he died on the cross. Why don't you start with John and look at the 30 uses of that word before we ever get to Matthew 24. The word generation. Look at Matthew 1.17. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David unto the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Those are periods of time in which men are born contemporary to each other. And there was a total of 42 of them between Abraham and the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand what the word means. And we understand what it means right here in Matthew chapter 3. I've got to go on. Generation means a group of men born at a particular period in time. And even if we didn't know that, we would know the word has to mean that because the object of Malachi and the object of John the Baptist and the object of Jesus, the object of his parables, the object of the apostles was judgment on a group of men that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't national guilt extending over thousands of years. It was one period of time where the men were more wicked than they ever were in the history of that nation. They were the ones that killed Jesus Christ. You can't blame that on 18th cousins coming 1,500 years later. It was the men that actually saw the miracles, heard the testimony, heard John the Baptist, saw the changed lives. And crucified the Lord of glory. It was that generation. Those wicked men. And the Bible refers to them over and over. Paul said, the uttermost wrath of God is come upon them now. That group of men living while Paul was writing 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so we have John limiting a judgment to that generation. Remember what we read in Malachi 3 and 4. I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, that great and dreadful day of the Lord can't be separated from John the Baptist by 2,000 years, or John the Baptist's ministry is utterly worthless. Worthless! What wrath was he warning them to flee from? There was a wrath that fell on them in their lifetimes. And it was the wrath described here, God's curse upon that nation for disregarding the prophet that he had raised up like unto Moses, who was in fact his own son. He said, oh, generation of vipers. And he calls them snakes, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There was wrath coming, and it was John's purpose to announce it. Behold, I'm going to say it again. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I will send Elijah the prophet. John the Baptist came to preach to that nation, repent or else. They didn't repent, so they got the elves. And that was the judgment of wiping out that nation that Jesus Christ and the prophets and the apostles speak of throughout their ministries. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Remember, in, in Matthew chapter 22, when God the ki- made a marriage supper for His Son, He was a king, and He made a marriage supper for His Son, that means He offered the kingdom to the Jews if they would obey, if they would repent under the ministry of John the Baptist. And they lately treated the whole thing. And they persecuted those that brought the message. What did that parable say? It said the king was wroth. The wrath to come. The king was wroth. He went and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Because they did not receive the kingdom of God that John announced. John announced a kingdom. And when God announces something to His people, He expects His people to take it. But they didn't, so He destroyed those miserable men, those murderers, and burned up their city. And He brought that kingdom to us and announced it to us when He sent His servants out of the highways and hedges to compel us to come in. That's the wrath that they were to flee from. It's the wrath of the oven that Malachi chapter 4 described. An oven that was going to burn them up like stubble. Because they had disobeyed the Word of God. If it didn't happen in 70 A.D., then Moses is a liar. Isaiah's a liar. John's a liar. Malachi's a liar. Because there had to be judgment coming. Because they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think God is going to sit by, fold His hands, and drink a mint julep on His bed while He waits 2,000 years to do some judgment, you've missed the boat. You've missed the whole New Old Testament and the New. There was judgment coming on that generation, those men living at that time. And wrath did come. And everyone that has read a little bit 
And all you need is a little bit about the history of what happened to the Jews. They were wiped out and scattered into all nations just a few years after John the Baptist preached. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Show me some changed lives. Because if you don't show me some changed lives, Jesus is coming to curse the earth. Which he did. What earth? The Judean earth. Always limited by context. Malachi, which is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. But let's keep reading verse 9. Think not to say within yourselves, this is where the Jews put their confidence, we have Abraham to our father. God did not think that these people had Abraham to their father. Who did God say was these people's father? The devil devil himself. Ye are of your father the devil. John chapter 8 verse 44. And then as I quoted to you this morning, try Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. Those people that worship in synagogues and call themselves Jews are in the synagogue of Satan and they're liars. And if you were to read Revelation 3, 9, the Lord Jesus Christ promises Gentile believers, I will make them to come and worship at your feet because I have loved you and not them. Now let's keep going. Verse 10, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Cast into what fire? The fire of God's judgment coming upon that nation, just as Malachi 3 and 4 described it as a burning oven that would burn them up. Verse 11, explaining when the fire would come and who would bring it. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. What's the baptism of the Holy Ghost? It was God pouring out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to the believers, to the faithful, to those that feared God. For 40 years of signs and wonders to that nation, like Moses gave them. Moses gave them 40 years of signs and wonders and they disobeyed Him. Jesus Christ gave them 40 years of signs and wonders through His apostles. They disobeyed Him. He'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost in the day of Pentecost, and He'll baptize you with fire. And He baptized them with fire 40 years after the day of Pentecost, when He destroyed that nation and burned up their city. A baptism of fire is not having a little tongue of fire on your head. If that's what you believe, let me direct you to the First Presbyterian Church downtown, where you can join them in their interpretation of Scripture. That was no baptism of fire. The baptism of fire must meet the conditions of Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, and that's an oven that burns things up, not a little tongue on your head. Not a chance. And notice the order. It wasn't the fire, then the Spirit. It's the Spirit, then the fire. God gave the Spirit in the day of Pentecost, then the fire 40 years later when He burned up that nation. Verse 12, look at what it describes about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Elijah the prophet. John the Baptist had such a limited understanding of things. All he knew is, God is going to smite the Jewish nation with a curse, and I have to preach repentance, and there's one coming after me that is mightier than I, and my whole life is just to make him known to Israel. And that's it. Do you know what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He said there's never been a greater man born of a woman than John the Baptist. But do you know what he went on to say? Someone that's least in this congregation knows more than John the Baptist. John the Baptist just had a very little limited ministry, and it only lasted a few months. And that was to announce the Lord Jesus Christ and wrath on Israel. And look at what he says about our Lord Jesus Christ, whose fan is in his hand. Not, he shall take his fan 2,000 years from now, 30,000 years from now, or 300,000 years from now, and fan the flames of hell. His fan is in his hand because he's heating up his oven of Malachi chapter 4 to burn up the stubble of this nation. And look at what what words John uses. Whose fan is in his hand and he will truly purge his floor. The threshing floor where he would take the grain of that nation and beat it. And the chaff he's going to burn up and the grain he's going to put into his garner. Into his kingdom where he would keep them safe as his elect and part of his church. Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable means it doesn't stop until it's done the job, which was to wipe out the nation, burn up the city, and get rid of all of it, which is what 
God did to that nation. Not every Jew, but to the nation. The nation ceased to exist. It ceased to have leaders and rulers. It ceased to have a temple. It ceased to have a priesthood. Paul would say, hath God cast away his people which he foreknew? God forbid. Because Paul was an individual Jew that had been converted and saved. But the nation was burned up. When you read anything about John the Baptist, you go back and see the prophecy about him. That's Malachi chapter 4. We know exactly what he was preaching. The judgment that was coming on that generation. And he told us, O generation of vipers, you men that are living right now are a bunch of snakes. And they betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of a foreign government. I love the background music. The God of heaven whispers and the earth trembles. Come to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. John the Baptist said, there's a fire coming and it's the wrath of God and Jesus Christ has a fan in his hand. See that fan in his hand, what's it for? Was that to make the little coals come alive on tops of their heads? Or was that fan to get a furnace going pretty hot? Sort of like Nebuchadnezzar? Because our king is a great king, and he's a king of kings, and he's greater than Nebuchadnezzar ever was. And those Jews had every opportunity in the world to repent, and they didn't. They had more blessings than any nation, any group of people have ever had. They had the Son of God among them for three and a half years. And he burned them up. Look at what Jesus would say about his fire. Luke twelve forty nine. I am come to send fire on the earth. I am come. Not I shall come, but I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? It's already burning. The fire of God's wrath against that wicked nation was already burning. And what was keeping him from letting it go? What was keeping him from burning up the nation? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? He was restricted in what he could do because he had something to do first, and that was to lay down his life for you and me. Messiah was cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that his whole life. That's Luke chapter 12. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. John the Baptist introduced us to something. He said, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus said, I have a fire that's already burning, and as soon as I can lay down my life and what I was sent to do, it will come. Now, let's look at another, another verse that helps us with that generation, that focused object of God's hatred and wrath upon the nation of Israel. Luke chapter 9 and verse 27. I tell you of a truth. Why did Jesus say those words? Why did he start out a sentence by saying, but I tell you of a truth? Because many men do not want to accept this. Most men do not want to accept this. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. John the Baptist said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death until you see the kingdom of God. There was going to be some visible display of God's kingdom that some of them standing there would see before they died. Not many, but some. If it was an event 20 years away, Jesus would have said, there be many of you standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Because in 20 years, a group of people in an audience, most of them will be there, so you'd use the word many. If it was an event 60 years away, Jesus would have said, there be none of you standing here. Because in 60 years, when you have an adult audience, none of them would still be alive. 
There is a 40-year event that is coming Jesus is talking about. Now, we already know, and I'm remembering a point that I overlooked in my 40 points on Matthew 3, 7, when I only gave you a few, and that is the Bible tells us exactly how long a generation is. It tells us exactly how long it is. How long is it? 40 years. How long does it take to do something to a generation? The generation in the wilderness is where God defined a generation when he's dealing with a group of people that have done something very wicked. It was a generation that heard the report of the 12 spies and decided, we won't take the land of Canaan. They were just like the ones that wouldn't take the, mar- the invitation to the marriage supper of the king in Matthew 22. Except refusing that was far worse than refusing Canaan. And it was a 40-year group of people that dropped dead in the wilderness. Now we have a statement here in Luke 9.26, I tell you of a truth. I tell you of a truth. I believe this truth. I believe this truth, and it is such a simple truth. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. There was going to be a visible display that Jesus Christ would look like a king because he was going to destroy his enemies, and it would occur in about 40 years when some of them, many of them would already be dead, but some of them would still be alive and would be able to see it. If you can hold your hand right there, let's look at how Mark words it. They would see the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Mark 9, 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, when Jesus Christ begins a sentence with the words, Verily I say unto you, he wants your attention because he's saying, What I'm about to say is very true. Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Some will say, come with power, that's got to be the day of Pentecost. If it was the day of Pentecost, which was only a couple of months later, no one died. The language has no meaning. And the kingdom of God, there was power given to the apostles, but the kingdom of God hadn't come with the power that it did 40 years later which matches up with everything that we've read so far in the rest of the Bible. Let's keep going. You don't need to hold your hand at Mark because we've just read it, but look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, how does Matthew record this statement by the Lord Jesus Christ? Luke said, I tell you of a truth. Mark said, verily I say unto you. And so did Matthew record it that way in Matthew 16, 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Luke said, until you see the kingdom. Mark said, till you see the kingdom of God come with power. Matthew said, till the Son of Man comes in His kingdom. There would be a coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as a conquering avenger against that generation that crucified him. And it would happen while some of them that were standing there hearing him preach were still alive. This is not the second coming by any way, shape, or form. And whatever you make it, it's the Son of Man coming in a period of time within the lifetimes of some of those standing there. This is a generational issue. It's the generation that was then alive. Listen to the language. There be some of you that will still be alive. That means it's this generation. Or you can't have someone still living. You say, how do other people explain that verse? Well, they say it was fulfilled six days later when Jesus took three of his disciples up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured. I wonder why he said there be some of you that shall not taste of death till it happens when it happened in six days. That's absurd. That's an idiot reasoning in the Bible. Second reason, Jesus Christ didn't come in power on the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't come at all, and He didn't come with power, and the Son of Man was not seen coming in His kingdom. He didn't come anywhere. He was just glorified along with Moses and Elijah. There wasn't even a visible difference. 
I'll tell you, when the Son of Man comes, there is a visible difference. And when the Son of Man comes in fiery judgment upon his enemies, there's visible difference because Moses and Elijah have never done anything like the Son of God has done. There be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death. O generation of vipers, I hope you can hear the generational language of the judgment that was coming upon Israel. Oh, how did he come? He came 40 years later in 70 A.D. in judgment upon that nation, just as prophesied, just as promised. It showed his kingdom established in the earth because it completely undid the old kingdom of Israel. He burned it up. He burned and introduced a new covenant and put a formal stamp upon it by eliminating the altar in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, and all that had to do with the old covenant. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ was established. And anyone that was looking for it saw Jesus Christ come in power by raising up the Roman armies with his angels to burn up that city. Angels have always been involved in every war of men. Remember in Daniel we learned that there was a prince of Grisha and a prince of Persia And they weren't men. They were angels that God raises up to motivate those wicked kings to come and do his bidding. I'm going to skip Luke 17. It's too long. It's beautiful. Instead of saying the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, it says that a day of the Son of Man. Jesus told his disciples, brethren, there's a day coming in the which you're going to wish for a day of the Son of Man. You're going to wish I was back with you, around you, and we were enjoying the peace that we have right now because a terrible time is coming that I'm going to bring on this generation. And he goes on and describes it for about 15 verses. And he compares it to the fire coming down and burning up the city of Sodom after Lot had been taken out of it. He talks about two men being in their bed. He talks about two men being in their field. The one shall be taken, the other shall be left. The one that was taken was taken by the Romans and burned up and destroyed, just like the flood came and took away everyone in the earth in the days of Noah, just like the fire came and took away everyone that was in the city of Sodom. And he said, when that day appears, don't you go down into your house to get any of your stuff. That isn't second coming. No one goes into their house to get stuff at the second coming. There was a coming in judgment upon that generation. That was Luke 17. Got to go on. Luke 19. It's shorter. Luke 19, 41. Luke 19, 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus Christ visited that generation and because that generation did not receive him on his visitation, it was that generation that got burned up and destroyed. This isn't talking about a generation a hundred or a thousand or two thousand years later. It's that generation that did not know the time of the visitation of the Son of God to his kingdom. And so he leveled them to the ground with the Roman armies. Look at Luke 23. Luke 23. Jesus Christ and John the Baptist had this theme on their hearts and minds all the time. Because it was the great event coming upon that nation. Yes, Jesus Christ, I am straightened. I am restricted to what I'm supposed to do. And that's to lay down my life. But it was a constant. They knew that God was just waiting for Jesus Christ and the baptism of the Holy Ghost to be out of the way and the preaching of the apostles to get the witness in the whole world so that the whole world would recognize what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And as soon as that was done, the end could come. And the end was just being held back by those events getting out of the way before it came. Luke 23. Jesus Christ, you would think, on the way to the cross, would have been thinking only about laying down His life for His elect. But notice what He is saying, and notice notice what He says, and notice the generational wording He uses. Verse 27. Luke 23, 
and verse 27, And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. How long of a time period would that be when Mama is still there and she has children? Forty years away. Don't weep for me, you women of Jerusalem. Weep for yourselves and for your children. That is the generational issue. The 40 years that God defines a generation by, that was what was coming upon this nation. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And that's a proverb. If the Jews and the Romans, in a time of peace and prosperity, are doing this to an innocent man, what do you think the Jews and the Romans will do in a time of war when this nation is demon-possessed and my spirit has left it? Daughters of Jerusalem, this is not a passage for 2,000 years from now for you to go home and not have any children and not to nurse the ones you have. This is a passage for then. And it's what was on the Lord's mind even while He's walking up Calvary's hill to lay down His life for us. Because the fire, the fan was in His hand. Listen, I love this Savior. This is the Savior I preach. I will die for this Savior. I will not die for the one that I heard much of my life. I want to tell you about this Savior. They blindfolded this Savior and they smashed Him in the face. And they said, if you're the Son of God or you're a prophet, prophesy to us who hits you. But my Savior already had a plan in mind for them. And that was to burn up that city in 40 years. Right. He, had the, he had the will of God from the book of Deuteronomy all the way forward that he was going to bring to bear on that nation. I want to tell you that when he stood in the Garden of Gethsemane and told Simon Peter, do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels and deliver myself? He held those angels back for you and me, but in 70 A.D., he did not hold his 12 legions of angels back. He came in the clouds of glory with his mighty angels and destroyed that generation. Don't get upset by the language. You've never seen an angel, and you won't see one until you're in heaven. They are behind the scenes working in politics, as the book of Daniel tells us several times. My Lord Jesus Christ that I serve did not call angels when He was going to the cross because He was straightened to die for me until it was accomplished. But when that was accomplished, He unleashed His angels on that wicked city. And He unleashed the evil spirits of the underworld to fill that generation so that it was more demon-possessed than any generation the world has ever seen. That is Matthew 12, 43 through 45. And we're not going there. This is Luke 23. I hope you can see that the Lord Jesus Christ had this event of 70 A.D. on His heart and His mind even when He was going to the cross. Look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23. An error with understanding this subject is to start with Matthew 24, Mark 13, or Luke 21 and work backwards. It's the last thing He said. We want to come to Matthew 23. We're, we're looking at the generational aspect of God's judgment upon the Jewish nation. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Notice the generations being spoken of. This generation would go around and put flowers at the tombstones of the prophets. Did you notice that? They garnish. That means to put flowers there. We would never have done this if we'd have lived in those days. We'd have never done what that generation did. We are a better generation than them. Who did they kill? The Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 31, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. The fathers may have killed the prophets. These men killed the Son of God. 
Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. Sounds like John, doesn't it? How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you, that upon you, this generation, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar, though he had died 500 years earlier. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. I will hold this generation responsible for all the righteous blood ever shed in the history of the earth because they shed the blood of the Son of God. That should make obvious sense to you, let alone the fact that it's as plain as the noonday sun. Because they killed the Lord Jesus Christ, all the righteous blood ever shed was going to be exacted from that generation. What had they said when they were on, when Jesus Christ was on trial and Pilate wanted to let him go? What did they say? This is an innocent man. I want nothing more to do with him. His blood be on us and on our children. They understood what the word generation meant because that's a prophecy that God put in their lips. Just like the nation, the generation in the wilderness that said, would to God we had died in the wilderness. God said, that is a good idea. You'll all die in the wilderness. They said His blood be on us and on our children. The blood of the Son of God? They got their wish. They got their prayer. They got their curse. They cursed themselves. And do you know what? As soon as Peter started preaching and showing the fulfillment of Bible prophecy in Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5, they said, what in the world are you doing in this city? You're trying to bring that man's blood upon us. You bet they were. That was the ministry of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, of what was coming on that generation. It was an untoward generation. That means an obnoxious, profane, wicked, and malicious generation that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is my Lord and my Savior, and I will defend Him because He is a glorious King. And while He held back His judgment in order to die for you and me, He unleashed that judgment in short order upon those wicked men. Look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Oh, I'm going too fast. But Matthew 26. We read Luke 9.27. We read Mark 9.1. And we read Matthew 16.28. In those three verses, Jesus said, There be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. They see the kingdom of God come with power. They see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I forgot to read to you the verses, the single verse before each of those, where Jesus said that He was going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and judge men according to their works, just like Malachi preached. Just like, I'm going to come to you, I'm going to come to all those adulterers and sorcerers and wicked people in Malachi chapter 3 and destroy them, and there will be a difference made between the righteous and the wicked in that day. And the righteous would walk on the ashes of the wicked. And then you have a fuller explanation of what that coming meant. It was a coming of the judgment of Jesus Christ upon that nation. He would judge the wicked and he would save the righteous. While some were still living. Forty years later. We're at Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Jesus is standing there quietly. My king and your king stood quietly while he was on trial and being slandered for things he had not done. Verse 63 says Jesus held his peace. Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, you got it. What you said is true. I am the Son of God. Nevertheless, I say unto you, you might have me in your power at this moment. Nevertheless, I say unto you, notice the shift. He said, thou hast said, speaking directly to Caiaphas. Then he addresses all the priests that are standing in a circle around him. 
and says, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That is the Lord Jesus Christ elevated to the position that they all understood as David's Lord. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. They knew that prophecy. Jesus had already asked them about that prophecy. And Jesus told them, You will see me in my position that God has put me in, coming in judgment on you. You have power over me now, but I will have power over you soon. You say, it sounds like the second coming. So does, Mark, so does Matthew 16, Mark 9, and Luke 9. It sounds like the second coming because you're going by sounds, not by sense. When the verse says, there will be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death, you know it can't be the second coming. So you go by the sense, not by the sound. Right. Who cares if it says clouds? Since he's already limited the time frame to the, life, the lifespan of people that were standing there, then you have to look for a secondary understanding of clouds because he's told you a truth. There will be some of you sitting here that will still be alive when I come this way. So you look for clouds and then you read the Bible and you find out that when God comes in judgment, He comes with clouds, in clouds, rides on clouds, and comes in a storm of judgment upon people. And He told, this is a Savior I love. That is a Savior I love. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? You bet I am. And while you may have me now, He speaks to the whole crowd of priests around him. You will see me fulfilling Psalm 110, 1 and 2, and pounding you. The parable would put it this way. Fall on him and be broken. Let him fall on you, and he'll grind you to powder. That is the Lord Jesus Christ that we worship. When Peter quoted that verse... What is the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Who were the greatest enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ ever? The generation that crucified him. Quoted six times in the New Testament. When Peter preached, he brought his, in the middle of his sermon, he introduced the great and terrible day of the Lord that was coming. Then he said, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, in fulfillment of Psalm 110. Then he turned to those men that wanted to be baptized, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That profane, wicked generation that had crucified Jesus Christ, fall on him and be broken and be baptized and deliver yourself from the judgment that is coming. That's Peter. Look at Acts chapter 7 and let's get Stephen. Stephen. Stephen saw something that they didn't like. Stephen saw something a little better than Psalm 110 verse 1. What was Stephen even on trial for? He was a deacon. The first half of Acts chapter 6 is telling us how Stephen was ordained to be a deacon. The second half of Acts chapter 6 is telling us how God gave him wisdom that they could not gainsay. Just as Jesus Christ had promised when he sent out his disciples, he said, when you're put on trial, don't take any thought for what you're going to say, because when you get in front of them, I'll give you the words to say. And they could not withstand his wisdom. Verse 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. And shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. What was the message of Stephen the deacon? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, is Lord and Christ, 
and he is going to destroy this holy place that you trust in, and he is getting rid of the old covenant and bringing in the new covenant, the same ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and all the apostles. This was their ministry. Why isn't it ever preached? You know, we get tired of the Arminian Jesus who cannot save those he came to save. But I hope you get as tired of a Jesus that was only a lamb. My Lord Jesus Christ is a lamb slain in heaven at this hour, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he has crushed his enemies. And Stephen preached that gospel, and I want to preach, just like Stephen preached, that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye have crucified with wicked hands, is Lord in Christ and is going to destroy this place. Because Jesus said he was going to destroy it. I won't let two stones be attached to each other when I get done with this place. I'm going to rip it to shreds. I'm going to grind it to powder. I'm going to burn up their city. I'm going to destroy those wicked men. Why isn't that preached? Because they don't want to meet the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. That little long-haired wimp that they love to hang in their pictures is a very different God than the one I serve. I love Stephen's sermon here. And if you were to read through Acts chapter 7 with understanding, how do you do with understanding? With all the prophecies that we've already covered. Then, remember why he's on trial. Because he said, Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this holy place. Then read his sermon. Read, him, read how he reminds the Jews that Jesus was the prophet that Moses had said would be raised up. That they had better fear. Read how he describes that temple and quotes Isaiah 66 that God doesn't give a rip about that temple. The God, the God that I worship, Stephen said, doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. Go ahead and trust in your temple. You're as foolish as those in Jeremiah 7 that said the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know what Jeremiah said? You're trusting in lying words. And Nebuchadnezzar came and raised that temple to the ground. And Jesus of Nazareth came and raised this temple to the ground. Look what he said about them. After he applied Isaiah 66 to that generation of men that had him on trial, he said this. This was his invitation. 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the Just One, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. Stephen was not a chicken deacon, was he? Stephen was not your typical deacon. He unloaded on those men. He said, your fathers killed the prophets that told us about Jesus Christ coming, but you have killed Jesus Christ himself, the just one that was to come. They were cut to their heart. This profane and wicked generation cut to their heart. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, verse 55, looked up steadfastly into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, brethren, we have a little problem with our Bibles. Do you see the little problem? Psalm 110 and verse 1 is quoted six times. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus isn't sitting. When we find those six expressions and the other six to ten expressions in the New Testament of where Jesus Christ is located after his ascension, where was he? Sitting on the right hand of God. Sitting on the right hand of God. Sitting on the right hand of God. Why was he standing? Because he was coming. He was coming. He was going to take care of Stephen, and he was going to come on those wicked men, just as he had told them at his trial. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice. They couldn't have a message like that, especially since it had been circulated what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-six sixty-four about them seeing the Son of Man on the right hand of power coming 
And so they, they stopped up their ears. Isn't that, a, isn't that a wise approach to truth? Let's just stop up our ears so we can't hear. And they rushed on him with one accord. They had unity in that church. Stone the deacon. You've got to read that sermon sometime. If you want to meditate in the Word of God, just read through how Stephen warned them in such a magnificent sermon. One more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is our brother Paul. First Thessalonians chapter 2. There's more. I want to read at verse 13. And this ought to comfort us. This was written to Gentiles like us. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which worketh which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost." There would be a time of trouble, the likes of which the world hadn't and wouldn't see upon one nation of people. Daniel 12.1, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. A time of great tribulation, the likes of which the world had not seen. And here it is coming. The wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Was John's statement. This is the wrath. And when was it coming? 2000 A.D.? Wrong. 1000 A.D.? Wrong. When was it coming? It was just about to arrive when Paul wrote this because he said, The wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. It is hanging over their heads. And notice what he said about that wicked generation. They were filling up their sins all way. This was the final sin in the way they treated the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. They killed Jesus in verse 15. They killed their own Jewish prophets. They persecuted the apostles. They pleased not God. And they're contrary to all men. Now, when you can be contrary to all men, you're a devil-possessed lunatic. They were perverse and a profane generation. The things they did made no sense. Pilate could... Pilate knew they were killing an innocent man out of envy. Titus couldn't believe. He raised his hands to whatever God he knew, and he said, I did not cause what took place in the city of Jerusalem, because those wicked men killed more of themselves than the Romans ever killed. Jesus had told us it would be that way. They'd be seven times worse than when he found them. And here Paul said, they're contrary to all men, and the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. That is not hell. That is not the lake of fire. That is not the second coming. That's the destruction of Jerusalem because it was to the uttermost of wiping out the nation. Just as he had promised in Daniel to scatter the power of the holy people and they would be over. And there would be a new kingdom raised up from the ruins of it and it would be made of Jews and Gentiles together in one body by Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus told the parable, don't turn, Jesus told the parable of the householder. He turned a vineyard over. That was his kingdom. He turned it over to the Jews. He sent some servants looking for some fruits from that kingdom. 
a little bit of compensation for all the blessings he had given the Jewish nation. They persecuted, beat, and killed those servants. The nobleman said, I'll send to my son, surely. Surely they'll reverence my son. When they saw the son in this parable, they said, this is the heir. If we kill him, we can have the property. Jesus asked a question. What will that nobleman do when he comes? They said, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. They understood the New Testament as far as it pertained to them. You read a few verses later and the Pharisees understood that he spake of them. And this is when Jesus Christ said, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. That is the Gentiles. God took the kingdom away from the Jews in a 40-year period of reformation from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., then stamped out the old covenant and the old Jewish nation and had a new kingdom taken from the Jews, given to a body made up of Jews and Gentiles. This is the stone which the builders rejected. The same is become the head of the cornerstone. And it is marvelous in my eyes. And I hope that it is marvelous in your eyes. Because the Savior that I worship that is the cornerstone of this church is a stone that fell upon his enemies and ground them to powder. And the lesson for us is to fall upon him and be broken. And do you know how you break yourself? Is to repent of your sins. Whatever sins that you are harboring, covering, hiding, and not repenting of in your life, you better repent of them, because if Jesus Christ falls on you, He'll grind you to powder. Fall on Him and be broken in repentance. They tried to kill Him for that parable because they knew he was talking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews. The next chapter takes right up with what I've already mentioned to you about the king having a great marriage supper for his son, and they made light of it. And so he destroyed those murderers and burned up their city, and he sent his servants out and said, Listen, I still have a kingdom. I have chairs that need to be filled. Do you think you can find some Gentiles that would like it? Brethren, let's bring forth the fruits that God's looking for from his kingdom. Let's praise and love Him. Let's live for Him. Let's talk of Him. Let's speak often one to another about the great King of glory that is our Savior. He was very straightened for you and me until it was accomplished. Do you know what that accomplishment was? Our eternal redemption on the cross of Calvary. There was a great event in 70 A.D. that the world ignores because they don't want a Savior that deals with His enemies like that. That's the Savior I represent. It's the Savior of the New Testament. Love Him. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Amen. Amen.